Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Normally at this point I would say thank you. You may be seated. So if you're home and you're standing, thank you. You may be seated. I am, uh, I'm glad you're joining us today. I've, uh, I've got some good news and some... We'll call it not so good news. Um, I'm going to start with the good news first. Uh, I had a really, really good week. Um, a lot of good news in this week uh, in my household. Um, on Tuesday, God brought our third, our newest baby granddaughter into the world. Uh, healthy and safe and mom safe and they are doing well and uh, she yeah she's beautiful just in case you were wondering uh, her papa thinks she's beautiful and you would too if you saw her um, the other thing is my my dad came through he had a kind of a cardiac event um, not not huge last Sunday and um, ended up having to have a, a pacemaker put in he came through that procedure really really well maybe too good because now we're trying to figure out how are we going to get him to slow down um, long enough for this thing to heal up uh, so pray for for him and uh, another good thing because I there was a season in my life where I never thought I would make it past 45 um, I'm grateful and excited that yesterday I turned 59 and uh, so happy birthday to me yeah 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 um, grateful for for those things now here's some, and I don't really think of it as bad news, um, I think of it more as, as sad news. Um, we have a, a family uh, that have been serving in River Bluff like crazy. Uh, it, it, uh, he's actually been a staff member. Uh, Don and Chris Stewart have experienced a, a relocating uh, by the Lord, and if you heard this story, you would obviously understand that there's no way in the world that anybody but the Lord could have delivered to them what he delivered to them in such a short period of time. But Don and Chris have moved to Georgia. Don has served on our staff since 2009, January of 2009. He came on our staff. Uh, he has served in so many unbelievably vital roles. He is uh, a man filled with the Spirit of God and and much grace and wisdom. Uh, so is his wife, Chris. They have blessed us uh, infinitely more than we ever blessed them. There was a, a, a day, he, we, we didn't pay him a lot uh, when he came on staff, but there was a day when Chris, uh, Don finally came uh, to Pastor Kurt and said, um, I don't even need you to pay me anymore. We, we were kind of in a season where finances were tight, and Don said, I, I, I believe God's called me to do this, and he's worked it out so I don't need salary, so don't pay me no more. And Don has been working diligently. He has served uh, over in our ministry center, uh, over at Low Country Cares for years on the board there, and uh, selflessly serving he and Chris. And Chris has given leadership to the work we do um, in our partnership at um, a local elementary school that God has blessed us with, Oak Brook Elementary School, a wonderful relationship we have. There's been so many. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit trying to name them because I'll forget something. So uh, we're, we're praying for Don and Chris now. I hope you'll join me in doing that for the blessings of God to fall on them in this new place and uh, that God would deliver them into a, a family, a church family that loves them as much as, as we love them and will continue uh, to love them. And um, so I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm sad, but I'm grateful for the work that God is doing to bless kind of the, 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 the northern Atlanta area near the mountains. And um, so anyway, maybe we all have a new place to go for vacation or something like that. We'll, don't, don't tell Don and Chris I said that. Um, another uh, kind of good news thing I think of is that I really have earnestly desired to step into what we're stepping into today. Back in, back in January of last year, no, excuse me, back in January of this year, it seems like years have just kind of fallen apart in my brain recently. But back in January, the Lord kind of began stirring uh, in me uh, just thoughts and uh, even tension in me regarding the church, the capital C church in our nation, 
and the continuing racial divide that is still so deep and still so exist. And I considered back then uh, launching in February uh, a series, but uh, the Lord kind of said, slow your roll and um, take some time to do some more learning uh, and some more listening. So I, I started a discussion group. Um, that met on Sunday afternoons. We used a resource entitled The Church and the Racial Divide. I highly commend it to any small group. It's a great resource. Um, and I'm really grateful the Lord slowed me down uh, because I would not have been uh, as ready. My soul needed to, a little more time to prepare to lead uh, into this series now. And it reminded me again, once again, how grateful I am that the Lord is patient with us, uh, how grateful I am that the Holy Spirit actually guides his people if we will, if we will but listen. And um, so I'm grateful that we've arrived at this point. But one of the things that I want to urge you, I want to urge you to engage every message for the next three weeks. We're going to be utilizing, diving into Micah chapter 6, really focused on verse 8. And every week, we're going to unpack kind of the next phrase in that verse. And it tells us, this verse does, what God requires of his people. I mean, it's real poignant about that. And so if you miss one week even, you're going to miss one powerful component of what God requires of his people. Now today, we're going to look specifically at God's call on his people to do justice. Do justice. We'll read it in a moment. God's word tells us consistently throughout both the Old and, and the New Testaments that there is going to come a final day of judgment. There's, there's one day when uh, the one human race, because there's only one human race, the, the whole human race, one day God has promised he is going to judge with his justice and he will set everything right. And one of the things I believe about that great day is that every human being is going to somehow be surprised at what God's ultimate justice looks like. We all, we all have what we think justice is. But we don't have the mind of God. We don't see the way he sees. I think we're all going to be surprised. But I believe eventually what's going to happen in all of us is God's people. We will see it as God does. And one of the things we're going to wholeheartedly do is agree. Yes, God, you were good and right and just in all of your ways. I believe that now. And I, I hope and pray that you do. Now, but until that day comes, that ultimate day of God's judgment comes, God's word tells us that there are moments in human history where he steps in and he actively brings his temporal justice. And you can read about this throughout the, the scriptures and see it coming in one nation after another, one culture after another. You can read through the Bible and see it, even uh, God bringing temporal justice and judgment on his own people at times. I believe you can also see it even in more modern history. I, I believe God has chosen uh, at, at times to step in to history that's uh, even after the biblical writers uh, to, 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 to change something that needed changing in our world. I, I believe that there was a day when God said enough of chattel slavery in our world. I believe he just said, that's it. We're, we're done with this, this, this injustice of one human treating another human this way. Now, in the British Empire... It took place, it happened for the most part, God, God was able to move through it peacefully under the leadership of, of folks like William Wilberforce. And that kind of slavery ended in the British Empire in 1834. But in our nation, unfortunately, it would not be removed so easily. And I personally believe, this is Joe's opinion, I know, I'll just say that, I believe God brought his judgment. Now, I've talked to, to many. I've read very, very often. Some say that the Civil War was fought for states' rights and other issues. And let's just say, okay, I'll concede that to, to you. But what about the horrific sin that existed? The sin where one person created in the image of God believed that it was okay 
for them to own another person created in the image of God and, and not see them that way. Not see them that way, but to see them as property. Uh, property like they would see, you know, kind of like a, a mule that they could buy and sell and there would be paperwork on and they can give it as an inheritance if they chose to. And I personally believe that God said, enough. Judgment came. And the greatest loss of human life in armed conflict came to our nation. We're told by historians that over 620,000 soldiers died in the Civil War. Some more recent historians have estimated that number higher, up up to around 850,000. But let's stay with the lower number. That's 620,000. That is still more than the loss of American life in World War I and World War II and Korea and Vietnam combined. Now, you you may not think that God's judgment was falling on our nation then, but I do. I spoke um, a while back. Uh, back in 2017, about what, again, I thought I uh, saw as a movement of God on our land. Our culture, our world came to know it as the hashtag MeToo movement. But I think I saw God moving to restore justice to women, especially in our culture, who had been taken advantage of and in some, some, at some times basically used and not seen as, as people. And I spoke about it back then. And there was a shaking in our nation of injustice. And because of sin, because we didn't dig in and root it out, I believe God did. And when I say we, I'm talking about the capital C church. We didn't, we didn't dive in and address that. So I think God did. And I think God is on the move again. Now, I believe that every time God brings judgment, that one of the things that happens simultaneously is that Satan and all of evil moves to kill and steal and destroy, moves to create division and and confusion uh, in the midst of God's judgment. And Satan was very, very successful at times when this has happened. You know, you look back at the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, much evil came in after that. In the hashtag MeToo movement, evil grew up out of of that in some ways. And, And most recently, in this shaking and quaking in our nation over racism and justice and injustice, I believe that Satan and evil are are at work again. Even trying to create division in the body of Christ. But, but we, you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, we must stand on the gospel of Jesus and we must do it in an undivided manner. And that's what we're going to be looking into in this series. Now, I also need to say this. I am not setting out to offend anyone. I, I'm not. I have this sense, however, I'm probably going to offend everyone at some point over the next three weeks. Some of you are going to walk away thinking he should have said more, and you're going to be offended that I didn't. Some of you are going to think he shouldn't have said that. Others of you, uh, you know, there will be some who will be offended because the gospel of Jesus is just offensive to an unregenerated mind. That's just going to happen. Others, I'm going to offend because I'm human. I'm, I'm fallible. I'm still ignorant in some, some areas of this thing called life. And I, I'll go ahead and say this. This, this sense of offending, uh, Satan has tried to plant fear in, in my heart. Because I've already watched as other pastors, far more intelligent than I, far more gifted as speakers than I, men that, that I admire... They've been attacked while trying to start this conversation. And, and as I've watched it, sometimes it seems like it was just the slightest nuanced verbal misstep. And they just get pounced on. But here's what I've concluded. If we, if I, 
If I live in fear, just sitting and waiting until we figure it out, you know, how to say it just right, then the conversation will never happen. We, we won't go forward. And this conversation is desperately needed. So I'm just going to say it, it might come out wrong. But at least what we're going to do around here is we're going to speak into it. And when God calls us and where it's needed, we're going to speak truth to power. We're going to do that. But here's what I'm praying. I'm praying and hoping mostly that what this series is going to do here at River Bluff, and again, as, as Kyler shared, it's actually almost, almost 30 churches now who are participating in this. We're, we're hoping and praying, as, as we've gathered as pastors, we're hoping and praying that what we do is we start a citywide conversation. It's painful, but we believe we need to do this. And we, we, we want to do that so that it leads to Christ-centered engagement with every nook and cranny of our society where God would dispatch us to do his justice. But it's, it's starting to feel like, I don't know whether you've noticed this, the, the, the art of having reasonable conversations has been replaced with clicks and posts. You started to sense that? That that's how we're choosing to communicate. And friends, when that happens, here's the truth. We will never again be able to empathize with another human being if all we do is click and post and don't, and don't have conversation. And we'll just, we'll, we'll get stuck in our religiosity and, you know, we'll, we'll run to that. I didn't say the gospel. You don't get stuck in the gospel. You grow in the gospel. But you can get stuck in, in religion. And we... It's comfortable to stay there because oftentimes we, we're, we're in it with people who are just like us, who think like us, dress like us, vote like us, do all those things just like us. And, and, and all our religion will keep doing is just confirm our biases. And we will stay in our spiritual immaturity in, in these areas. But see, God has called us to grow. And if we don't, here's what's going to happen. Our capacity to hear his voice will grow dimmer. Our, our, our ability to hear his voice will be less distinguishable until finally God, because he has to, will act alone. He will act to bring about justice. He will step into history without us. He will even use pagan authorities to accomplish his righteous justice. If you don't believe me, you read this book because he did it time after time. Now here's one more reason, I think, in, including that, that we need, and, and I, I want to include me in this. I think I need th this series. Because the truth is, every one of us, no matter how much melatonin we have or don't have in our bodies, all of us have struggled somewhere with the sin of partiality. That's what God's word calls so much of this, the sin of partiality. And his word says that when impartiality or, or partiality is left unchecked, it always leads to injustice. And God will step in, into history, and stand against injustice when his people won't. And when we don't, here's the other difficult, painful part that you need to hear it almost always leads to our suffering. We, we will suffer loss, maybe even demise. So today, we look at God's justice. And if you don't already have your Bibles open to, to um, Micah chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to turn there. We're going we're gonna to be mostly uh, in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 in a little bit, but I want to start uh, by reading from Micah uh, chapter 6. And I'm going to start in verse 6. Micah, this prophet of God, begins this section of his thinking with some internal questions. I believe this is an internalization in some ways, but I also think he's casting these questions out to the people of God. He says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with Ten thousands of uh, uh, rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? 
the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And then Micah says this. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What Micah is saying is God has told his people already through other prophets, through, throughout his word, God has told his people already these things. Do justice, love kindness or mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, we're going to take our time that is remaining and just look at this one calling from God, this, this one thing that he is saying for uh, today, and that is to do justice. Now, part of what I want to do is begin with this idea of sin that leads to injustice and see how our own personal sin, how once it gets embedded throughout a, a culture or an organization or even a nation, it can even get embedded in a church. What happens when that journey begins? Now, it's going to feel a little uncomfortable at times. We're going to look for ways out of this. We're going to try to wiggle out of these thoughts ourselves because this is going to be a hard conversation. Right now, what's going on out there uh, in, in, in Twittersville or whatever you want to call it, the, 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 there's a, a name-calling thing happening. And if you say something that somebody doesn't like, depending on which side of the camp you're on of thought, you're either a Marxist or a racist, or some spattering of that. That's what's going on out there. So instead of asking and dealing with questions and having conversations, we just start name-calling. Now, friends, truthfully, if it's racism, we're going to call it racism. If it's Marxism, we're going to call it Marxism. But just because something begins to mess with your sensibility or your your comfort doesn't mean it's either of those things. And so we've got to go to God's word. And I want to start in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, that's where it all began. It's where the great rebellion against God's authority and God's plan for good happened. And you know that story. Adam and Eve chose sin over God. And sin entered God's good creation. And it picked up steam. Once sin landed, it picked up steam and began to roll. So that by the time you turn the page in the Bible and you get to Genesis uh, chapter 4, sin has so gripped humanity that Cain kills his brother. We see the first murder. Cain kills his brother, Abel. Now, just before it happens, just before Cain kills his brother, God comes to him. And God warns him in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God warns Cain that the sin, it had a desire to be his master. It had a desire to rule over him. Which it obviously did. So what happens as sin increases? What what happens when those individuals who, like Cain, got mastered by sin, what happens when they come to power and authority in an organization or a nation? What what happens? Well, they begin to use that power to give full reign to their desires. That power that that attached to them, the sinful desire, begins to get embedded in wherever they have authority. And God warns his people about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, God's word says this. He said, you shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. This is is God's people have now been set free and they're coming into the promised land or uh, when they come into the promised land, these are the things God says you need to do. So that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and you shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
the, the sin that God is warning Israel about in this passage is the sin of partiality full-blown. And when it happens, it gets embedded. And specifically here, it's talking about their judicial system. It says this system will be corrupted if sin increases. And the sin of partiality took root one day in the judicial system in, in Israel. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it's not going to come up on your screen, you can read it, but verses following that is another example of sin being embedded. And God warns the Israelites that when, when they appoint a king, uh, when, when, when that happens, they, they must be sure he does not accumulate many wives or many horses or great wealth for himself because it will lead his heart away from God. And his entire ability to govern will be compromised because it, his sin will get embedded in his system of governing. You go over to Daniel chapter 4. There we see God telling uh, through, through Daniel, uh, God, God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream. And it's a warning that God will judge him and that God will bring insanity upon him because of his pride if he doesn't repent. And Daniel, Daniel pleads with the king to repent in hopes that God will avert this judgment. Uh, verse 27 of Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Daniel says this to the king. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. There's this, it's not only just you know, using your mouth. You've got to renounce them by repentance and doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind. So there's action. There's doing of justice that you must do. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. There's going to be, there's going to be a, a struggle. Uh, there's going to be judgment if you don't. And see, the Bible speaks very clearly about it throughout. The ability of people in power to begin to use that power to exploit just as we see here, the vulnerable. That's why the Psalms, the, the songs of God's people, so often are filled with songs of God delivering the oppressed, of God defending those who are oppressed and, and trapped in human institutions that have gone awry. Now, so one of the phrases you'll see in the Psalms many times over and over is that God defends widows and orphans. And the reason God has to come to their defense is because God's people failed to do that. When the Old Testament speaks of the coming Messiah, it tells us that one of his priorities in ministry, priorities in the work that he will accomplish, is he will accomplish justice on behalf of those who need it often mentioning widows and orphans. And God's word continuously stands both against embedded sin and sin that has taken root in individuals. We, we see it playing out oftentimes back to back. Over in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23, we read this. It says, your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them love bribes and demand payoffs, but they refuse to defend the cause of the orphans or fight for the rights of widows. But then you, you think, yeah, those are evil systems. Those are horrible systems. But if you jump down just a few verses, it's not going to come up. You can look at it. Verse 29, it talks about the people stuck in idolatry. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8 does kind of the same thing. It speaks about judgment against those who buy up houses and land and there's nothing left uh, for the poor. But three verses later, it, 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 it chastises the, the whole culture for living in a drunken state. I mean, there's, there's this, God, God always is addressing both of these, um, personal and, 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 and corporate, because the outcome of sin destroys across the board. And see, God sees both of these as human brokenness and calls for repentance in, in both. Now, as we've seen, this sin of partiality, once gets fully embraced in individual leaders, it corrupts across human systems. And I want to address just one of the ways the sin of partiality expresses itself in our world and culture. And it's through the sin of what gets called in our culture racism. It's one type of partiality. Now, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, 
Um, I I want you to see, because you're going to see this if you read and study Acts chapter 10 and 11 and really uh, other places in Acts, and it's this. This is kind of my first point related to this. You're going to see that the first leader of the church struggled with racism. The first leader of the Christian church struggled with racism. Now, up until the day of Pentecost, uh, Christianity was pretty much solely a Jewish movement, a movement among the Jewish people. On the day of Pentecost, however, there was an explosion of the church, and the Holy Spirit just kind of went, went wild out there uh, among people, even of other nations and, and, and tongues. And things began to change quickly. Now, remember, at this time, though, all of the leaders of the church were Jewish. They had Jewish worldview. And Peter, at this time, was the primary leader. He had a very Jewish worldview. And and the the Jews believed that they were, in, in the sight of God, that they were the only people who were, they used this language, clean in the sight of God. And that everybody else that they called Gentiles, and they would... It would be kind of like spitting when they said it. Gentiles were unclean and were completely unacceptable to God. Friends, this was the sin of partiality, full-blown, being expressed through the perception of a race. Now, in Acts chapter 10, God deals with this in the first leader of the, of the first church. God deals with it in Peter's life through a vision. And in this vision, God challenges Peter's core beliefs, his, his worldview about what is clean and unclean. And in the vision, God tells Peter to eat a certain kind of food that Peter has, his worldview says, you know, it's, it's unclean. And Peter tells God no. Can you imagine that? I mean, he knows it's God he's talking to. God, God does this. He, he brings down this, this food and, and, and says to Peter, eat. And Peter says, oh, no. Not doing it. It's unclean. And God, God has to correct Peter's mind. Peter's mind has to be transformed. And eventually, Peter hears the voice of God clearly, and he eats. And then, because God was at work already doing something else simultaneously, God sent Peter to Joppa to the house of a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. And Cornelius was a non-Jew. And Peter, while there, makes this connection when these guys show up to take him to Cornelius, he makes a connection between the vision that God had given him and what God was now calling him to do. And so he goes. He drops his racist worldview and he goes with God. So in verse Uh, 28 of chapter 10, we see Peter saying this, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation but God. Friends, when you see that phrase, but God, one thing you should be is thankful. But, But God has shown me that I should not call any person, any person, common or unclean. And and Peter begins to see from God that every human on the planet, every person that he meets is an image bearer of the Lord God Almighty. That everyone on this planet is loved by God. And Peter repents. Peter, Peter changes his mind and then he changes his actions. Peter rejects his hatred, his years of hatred for the Gentiles and he begins to to lead a battle into the mostly Jewish church to bring about racial reconciliation. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, we see, see this. It says, Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anybody who connects and follows him connects with God. And God had to take the leader of his church, into what I think of as a very deep heart dive. Peter, Peter had to have his whole way of thinking reshaped and reformed, restructured, so that God could use him for what would come next. Now, Peter had already said no to God once. Peter could have said, 
no to God again. He could have stayed in what he felt like his comfortable worldview that he had known all his life. Had he done that, he would have missed out on what God had for him and what God had for the world. Now, I know it's easy for most of us to think to ourselves something like this. I'm I'm not a racist. You know, we'll say things to like ourselves. Hey, I got plenty of friends with skin color different than mine. And we'll, we'll give some type of analogy about that. But, but there are places, I believe, deeper in our hearts that God wants to go to do a greater work in, in all of us. And I know this. It has been for me. It, it's been true for me. I, I, I need it to sit and listen and learn and hear the cry, the heart cry from my, some of my bro, black brothers and sisters. I, I need it to, to hear them tell me. I need it to look in their faces about fears they had for their sons and their daughters, for, for their own lives. Just like Peter, he had to sit with Cornelius and his friends and family. He had to, he had to be there in Caesarea to understand what God was doing. You know, because before sitting with them and really listening, you know, he, he didn't get it. I remember, you know, what that was like not understanding you know, just, 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 just trying to say, you know, well, if you would just teach your kids to do the right thing, it'll all be fine. You won't have to worry. But sitting brought empathy and helped me to see that my way of thinking wasn't rooted in truth, which means it wasn't always true. And my heart was once again changed. And like Peter, my worldview got reshaped. Now, when Peter's heart got reshaped by God, he then had to join God on God's mission to reshape his church because, and this is my second point, the first church struggled with racism in, in horrible ways. After, after his life-changing experience with God through Cornelius, he shares the gospel with the Gentiles that have gathered there. And they receive Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God at the end of chapter 10 of Acts fell on that place. And they began having the same kind of spiritual experiences that the Jewish people had on the day of Pentecost. It, it was incredible. And Peter stays with them. We don't know for how long, but he stays with them and uh, he commands them to be baptized. So I believe he baptized them and he, he instructs them, he disciples them some. But then Peter eventually has to go back to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem and report what God is doing. And I, I think of that meeting when I read it, I think of it like a good old Baptist business meeting. You know, that's, what, that's how I kind of see it. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And if you read uh, that part of of Acts chapter 11, you will see he walks them back through. He gives them the history of what God did in his heart and what God did in Cornelius' life. And it became kind of undeniable. See, but there was this group, this group called the Circumcision Party. And they'll, they show up throughout the history of the church. Every time you see a new church planted, that group of people kind of kind of shows up. And they basically, what they were saying is, we don't allow that in my church. We don't let that happen in my church. So Peter recounts the whole story and basically says, okay, you got to deal with God on this, dude. Here's what God did. you got to deal with it. Now, again, that wouldn't be the end of this battle in the church at Jerusalem. This, this circumcision party, they would, they would come up over and over again. And basically what they were saying is if you don't become a Jew, you can't become a Christian. You know, Jesus only really ever dealt with th that idea of uh, addressing circumcision. It's, it's found in John chapter 7 and verse 24. And Jesus' response was basically this. Don't judge according to external appearance. 
Don't judge according to it. See, this was, this was Jesus' one address of that issue. Just don't judge that way. But this would not end the struggle for the Jerusalem church over this racial divide. It would come up again and again. And pretty much, again, wherever a church was planted, the sin of partiality would raise up in the hearts of people and leaders and eventually into the churches. And it has been raised up in the churches in our time. I've got a video that I want to, you to see. Um, it's the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention sharing some history about South Carolina Baptists. How about watch this? History is hard. As a people, Americans do not really like history, but we love nostalgia. Nostalgia allows us to see our heroes as spotless. It allows us to clearly define our villains. It allows us to only deal with short-term suffering. When we only deal with nostalgia, it lets us off the hook from discussing the difficulties of our past. It lets us off the hook from dealing with the issues that we are facing today because we only like to talk about the things we have quote unquote solved. But what we need to do as a people is we need to crush that view of nostalgia. We need to dig in deep to our history. We need to see clearly what went on before us as we understand where we are today. South Carolina was the only colony that had race-based chattel slavery in its charter. No one forced slavery upon South Carolina. We welcomed it and it was a part of us from the very beginning. Like all other states in the South, the system of life became dependent upon the enslaved people. As America was born, the cry for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were to be pursued by all men. This cry rang forth with the chant of give me liberty or give me death. At the same time, the problem of slavery came on the national conscience for the first time. But whatever pangs of conscience may have flickered, they were quickly snuffed out by the pragmatism of greed. With the invention of the cotton gin in 1794, the ability to produce the cash crop swelled to never before seen prices. South Carolina went from 1.5 million bales to 65.5 million bales in just a few short years. As the wealth in the South grew, the need for more slaves became greater and greater. Richard Furman, the most influential pastor in South Carolina at the time, and arguably the most influential in the country, claimed that slavery is an evil. He even admits that slavery does not appear to be consistent with the Declaration of Independence. However, Furman argued, that if we speak against slavery, then the damage would be too great in our society. Furman believed that if the pastors in South Carolina were to speak out against slavery, they would lose their position, their place, and their influence. The Christian leadership of South Carolina had forsaken being prophets to their culture and instead had become products of their culture. By the early 1820s, this had become clear. The Missouri Compromise had made the issue more than just an economic one. Now it had become political. The 1820 census brought panic to many in the state. For the first time, there were more enslaved blacks than there were whites. This led to a fear of insurrection, and that fear was realized in 1822. The plot of Denmark Vesey, a slave that had purchased his freedom, was uncovered. Still unsure how thick the plan was, the judgments came down quickly and harshly. 36 were hung and 70 plus arrested. After this, Slavery goes from something that is an evil to a positive good, as John C. Calhoun called it in 1837. Richard Furman, on behalf of the Baptists in the state, prepared an address to the governor and a joint session of Congress that explained the position of the church on the issue of slavery. He said, slavery is no longer a moral evil, but is established in the Holy Scriptures. As one minister who heard the speech of Furman said, Dr. Furman settled the issue concerning the lawfulness and right to own slaves in South Carolina for all time. Many people today use the excuse that our ministers in South Carolina were just men of their times, but that excuse is not sufficient. These men knew that the Imago Dei existed in everyone. They believed in the scriptures that taught in the value of every human being, but still they oppressed many and kept them in bondage and slavery. They rang out the truth, give me liberty or give me death, but they withheld liberty from others. It is baffling for us today to believe or understand that many of our leaders 
bought so deeply into the Word of God, yet so twistedly turned the Word against people that were just like them. Baptist leader at this time, Francis Whalen, said that many Southern Christians had displayed a heart that was petrified, a petrified heart of white supremacy. Whalen said that because of this, their conscience had turned away from the oppressed of their day to the oppressor. As the church today, we have absolutely everything we need with the gospel of Jesus Christ to answer these issues of our past. We have a way to understand grace and mercy. We have a way to understand justice and unrighteousness. As pastors, as leaders, as Christians in our state and in our community, we need to understand that it is our desire, our hope to be prophets to our culture, not products of it. May we as a church unite around that, speaking the gospel faithfully to a culture that is desperate for it. If we don't be prophetic voices to our culture, we will only become, as he said, products of that culture. The, the church still struggles with this. The church always, always had. As God is calling us to live undivided. You and I know this, that Jesus' great desire is that... For the church, we see it in the final destination in Revelation 7. This isn't in your notes. You can go read it later on. But in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, the apostle John gives us a glimpse of the church gathered in heaven. It says this, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that is Jesus' heart for his church. That we would now, even now, in the here and now, display to the world the power of the gospel to transform human brokenness Broken humans like us to, to be empowered to live in undivided, rich biblical community. That the local church would be a foretaste of the kingdom of God coming finally. But that will only happen as you and I, individuals in the church, not only allow God, but that we cry out to God to reshape our hearts, restructure our, our worldviews, change uh, our, how we think of our own sin of partiality. And we've got to deal with this truth that not only did the first leader of the church struggle with this, not only did the church and has the church struggled with this, but you and I have struggled with racism in some form. Look at the first group of Christians. Look how they dealt with this on a personal level. Acts chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Peter says this, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when they believed or when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And it says this, when they heard these things, they fell silent. It goes on to say that they glorified God, but they, I don't know how long they were silent. They, 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 they fell silent. They stopped talking they, start, they stopped telling what they thought, and they allowed God to do an individual work in their heart. The Holy Spirit was reworking their minds. He was redeeming their worldviews. He was sanctifying their hearts. And friends, if, if Peter you know, had only listened to his friends, it, it, you know, only did what they said, if he'd only listened to the culture that he had surrounded himself with, you know, everybody else who thought just like he did, if he had only stayed in, in the comfort of his, his church's bias, if those were the only voices he would have listened to, he would have missed on the glory and the beauty and the power of God to change the world. But Peter listened to God. And God said to Peter, go. Go where you don't think you should go. Go in the name of Jesus. And Peter got up and he did something. Peter got up and he did justice when he went to Cornelius' house. So what will this look like for us? You know, these are not going to come up on the screen. I want to give you three things real quickly. Just three things real quickly. 
First, I want, I want to say this. Go first to God earnestly and humbly in prayer. Just go to God in prayer. Ask him to search your heart, to begin to show you where the sin of partiality has its hold, its grip on you. Some of you know that I, I came to Christ uh, as a junior in high school. The school that I went to was, was Stahl High School. And Stahl High School in the mid-70s was known as a place of great racial division. And there were times where there were massive fights that would break out on our campus. And it would be drawn down racial lines. As a high school freshman, I got pulled into that. I was a, a part of that. Now, please help me. I, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. It's just the truth of my story. After coming to Christ, he began to personally reshape my thinking on so many things. This is one of those areas. I had a, a Sunday school teacher when I started attending Sunday school named Jerry Gibson and his wife Jeannie, and they began to disciple me. And they discipled me especially around this issue of my anger and my hatred. They, they called it out of me. And God used them to lead me to repent so that by my senior year in high school, I, I became a reconciler of the racial division. I was, I was working to bring people together to, to talk. God was using me on campus that way. I didn't have like an official title. It was just something I sensed God calling me to do. See, Jesus had reconciled me to God, overcoming my sin, and had given me the ministry of reconciliation. And he wants to do that in everyone's life. He wants us to have his heart for justice. Start with praying. Second thing that we must do if we want to see healing come to our land we've got to do what the lord requires of us and the lord requires us to do justice and if we're going to do that the second thing we got to do is we've got to do this we have got to learn and listen more than we talk and dismiss so often what we do is we hear something we just dismiss it we click and we post we've got to search for god's voice in this in what you're hearing. I, I will even go as far as to say this. Don't trust my voice alone. You, we've seen already how pastors throughout centuries have, have missed the mark. I'm going to do my best to follow Christ so that you can you know, follow me as I follow him. But you seek to hear from God for yourself. Now I hold with conviction that God speaks to his children by the Holy Spirit through his word through our circumstances, and through other Christians. And I, that was my experience. And see, I, I believe that last one is important in these days, that, that, that we let others speak. We seek out and have personal discussion with brothers and sisters who uh, melatonin levels are much different than ours, that we put ourselves in front of them and we hear their hearts. And we seek to listen, not debate, and we try to understand before we try to get our points across. And then, once you've heard from God, the last thing you need to do is take a stand. T take a stand. Some of you um, have heard me talk about Will Browning. Will Browning is the pastor of Journey Church. We're like... 14th cousins once removed we, his mother's maiden name is Still she grew up in Barnwell my family comes from Barnwell we know we're related we've just never taken the time to figure out how and Will was sharing with a group of pastors the other day um, when we were kind of collaborating on, on this message a personal story that happened to him in the very first church where he served as a student pastor and he had they had a, a young black girl named Tasha who had started coming to, to their youth group, and uh, Will, of course, at some point invited her to attend their, their worship service, and she pretty quickly uh, said no, and he said, why, what's up? And she informed him that there was this story out there that she couldn't come to worship because that's where, in their town, black people had been hanged in, in the auditorium. 
it was, those stories were out in the community. That's how pervasive racism was in this church. Will had no earthly idea. And Will said he tried to downplay it, but, and he really kind of urged you know, Tasha to come. And eventually she built up the courage to come. And Will said he watched that Sunday morning as an elderly woman approached his pastor. His pastor's first name was Jimmy. He approached, she approached Pastor Jimmy as he was making his way to the auditorium. And he told Pastor Jimmy, you need to get that little, and he, she used the N-word, out of my church. And the pastor responded to this lady and said, ma'am, I'll tell you what we can do. I'm, I'm quoting Will here. He said, you can leave this church and never come back. Or I can resign as the pastor of this church. But one thing I can guarantee you that I will never do is tell Tasha she can't come worship God today. Pastor Jimmy knowingly put his ministry and his livelihood on the line that day to do what was right for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and Will spoke about the courage that he saw his pastor display and, and talked about how that was a defining moment in his life. And he decided that day he would always do what was right, no matter what it cost him. Because he saw the courage of Jesus flowing through Pastor Jimmy. Friends, Jesus was the most courageous person who ever lived. And if we want to find the courage to step into seeing this world changed, it will only come as we come to know him, as we come to follow him, as we come to walk with him, as we come to grow in him and trust in him. And it starts by having a relationship with Jesus. And you can do that by doing what we saw Peter do. He trusted God. He changed his mind. He repented. And then he did justice. That's the call of God for, for all of us. Especially for those of us who have been following Christ for a long time. We've got to have the courage of Christ to empower us with the multi-ethnic gospel of Jesus that can overpower the most appalling sin of partiality at work in our world today and in some places still at work in the church. And that's the sin of partiality that we know as racism. I want to implore you, if you've never trusted Jesus, I believe with my whole heart that the beginning of world change, the beginning of the healing of our nation is through Christ and Christ alone. And it starts as you trust him, maybe for the first time, repenting of thinking that you got it figured out and only leaning on Jesus, and then coming to him humbly in repentance and saying, Jesus, I only want to do it your way. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you to forgive my sin. I'm trusting you, uh, God, to, to reshape my life. I want to follow you. And then for those of us who have been following him, to give ourselves fully over to whatever he would do in our lives. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I, I just come in Jesus' name right now giving you thanks for your goodness. Giving you thanks that we can have life in you. Giving you thanks, God, for the joy that you have set before us. But God, we know that right now it... It's hard. It's heavy. Our world is broken and struggling. And God, you've given us the answer, the good news in Jesus, the hope of the world, the hope that overpowers the sin of partiality, the hope of the world that as defeating partiality, it begins to root it out of organizations and nations and even churches the sin of racism. So God, I pray right now that you would begin afresh to have your way in our lives, that we would trust you, we would hear your voice, we would not let our hearts be hardened and we would follow you. But God, we come knowing, we come knowing that we are broken, that we are people who are still broken on the inside, that you are redeeming and healing and sanctifying. Holy Spirit, we need that. We need your grace to heal our brokenness so that we can be reconcilers in a broken world. So God, we first come 
to you. Giving you permission. Not just permission, God desiring that you would show us, reveal in us our sin. Point out any evil way still in us. Teach us, God, to, to listen and learn from others and not just continue to dismiss the cries of our brothers and sisters. Help us, oh God, I pray, to be the church we see in Revelation 7. Let, let us be that church now in the days ahead. But it will only come by your grace. So we come now in this moment seeking your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.